Counterculture Hour with host V. Vale, produced by Marion Wallace for Research TV. Our guest today, Penny Rimbaud, Part 1. Welcome to the Counterculture Hour. I'm your host, V. Vale. I've been doing counterculture publishing since 1977 with Search and Destroy, and today we're especially privileged and happy to have with us all the way from London, England, Penny Rambeau, most notorious for being in one of the hardest core so-called punk bands named Crass, and since then he hasn't stopped creating. He's produced a ton of books, and he does incredible readings of his poetry, and he's an all-around provocateur in the best sense. So welcome, Penny Rambeau. Thank you. Okay, so Penny, tell me, what were you thinking about when you walked down to our office this very morning? Well, interestingly, I was thinking absolutely nothing at all. Because um, I've been not practicing, but I've, I, I was real. I actually ended up at Cafe Trieste. And I was sitting there, and I was suddenly aware, and which in the way denied the state, but that I had at last in my life achieved a state of no mind. And so I hadn't thought anything at all from the time I really woke up until the time I got to the Trieste. And then I did think in the sense that I thought, how nice, no mind. Which doesn't mean that thoughts aren't going on, because thoughts go on of their own accord. But it does mean I don't actually attach myself to the thoughts. And so the thoughts don't attach themselves to the mind and therefore don't become sort of threads and complications and psychologies they simply meander off with a bird song so that's what I was thinking or not thinking when I came from the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill in short don't tell me you've actually reached nirvana haha no I don't think I have but I certainly have made a big step towards being able to free myself of sort of psychological entanglement, which is what I've been working on hard for the last year and a half. Um, Because I've, you know, for a long time, um, intellectually been able to say that I reject the entire sort of Freudian psychotherapy uh, issues, the lineation of psychological states uh, and an attempt to because I I feel that unless one can destroy the multiple duality of psychological states then one can't achieve the whole being Um, and I think it's my own view that the 20th century will be viewed as being almost as sort of vile in its um consideration of the human mind as the sort of medieval witch hunt era uh, where certain ways of thought certain ways of imaginings were considered to be devilry Um, well I mean that's precisely what psychotherapy and the whole Freudian school um, demonised 
states of mind. Um, you know, all states of mind are by nature creative because the mind is by nature creative. If we are unable to understand or follow those imaginings, then, you know, it's we who will suffer. And I do believe that um, the parameters drawn by Freudian analysis and all of the psychoanalysis that has followed that era has actually created the type parameters that most people suffer now in terms of social, intellectual and emotional behaviour. So, uh, whereas intellectually I have for a, a long length of time been aware of the damage done through a definition of mental states, it's only very recently that I at last feel I'm free of psychological entanglement. That's so odd because it's only in the last few years that I've kind of started to realize that consciousness can reside in the body, not just the brain, mm -hmm. as a machine. Mm -hmm. and, um, and and that memory also might be distributed through the body and mm -hmm. that, you know, if you broke your little finger at age three and you suddenly, um, I don't know, not exactly injure, but, you know, remember it, you can almost be transported back to that state of mind when it happened, which you couldn't consciously remember. So I I know there's a dichotomy between conscious and unconscious in out there, but I I prefer striving for almost a seamless integration of both somehow. It, so it's funny I've never thought of psychological states before, you know, as with names attached. Well, I just I mean, what I feel is I mean one of the things that kept bumping up for me was the idea of beforeness, you know, before the I of, of, of Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Well, the I must be a presumption, um, and is a presumption. And I was interested as to how one might operate um, ahead of that, you know, in other words, the before the I, hmm. uh, which, of course, is the great silence. Um and to what degree one could operate in the so-called material world within or within that silence. Of course, one can't be within it because, you know, it's, it, it, you know it, it, it is of infinite scale in, and one is simply it. So even to think of being within it is, is effectively to sort of take up a Cartesian position the eye is still trying to imagine itself within the situation rather than being the situation. Um, whether or not one can achieve any form of human communication in the before, I don't know. I mean, I, I like to think one possibly can. Um, but, you know, that's still a conundrum for me. I mean, I certainly know that one can exist in the before, or not exist. I mean, I have to keep saying that. You know, one can't possibly exist in the before because one is either the before or not the before. Um, and one doesn't exist. One doesn't exist in it. One simply evaporates into it uh, and becomes the nothing, the, the immortal nothing and the immortal no one. Well, you know, 
I'm just trying to figure out what humans or pre-humans were like before language slowly evolved. It had to evolve one word at a time. I mean, <laughs> and I was thinking instead of I think, therefore I am, maybe it's we think, therefore we are. But I don't think that was very funny. No, well, I, well, I mean, clearly that's a necessary factor. I mean, the, the I think is fairly irrelevant. Uh, the we is at least sort of slightly more moving towards some sort of idea of symbiosis. I mean, if there is anything out there, clearly it's a symbiosis. And, I mean, one has to, I think, keep repeating if there's something out there because there's absolutely no substantial proof that there is anything out there. We simply assume that. And we know that it's nothing but our imaginings. It can be nothing but our imaginings. It, it is the name we give it. And through giving it, so it takes form. Um, I tend to sort of just be willing to play that theatre. You know, I don't try to destroy that theatre because that theatre is how seems to operate in some way one can operate in it in it and uh, um so i don't i haven't as yet created an argument about that but i mean nonetheless i'm perfectly aware that there is nothing but imagining you know and and, and the entire material world is nothing but a series of attitudes it can be nothing but a series of attitudes we will only recognize what there is to be recognized through our own state of mind and where you go from there is another matter entirely. Um, but I think, and where, whether language has been destructive or constructive is another. I mean, I, I, I suppose I've been a deconstructionalist most of my life, trying to remove false ideas, imposed false imposed ideas, so I can arrive at some sort of authentic, qualitative existence um, and certainly I, I am aware that that, that uh, qualitative um, existence is divorced from word in any conceptual or you know in any conceptual way and I mean, it could be interesting to say well you know where, where can word be if it isn't conceptual um, in other words, so it's simply the flamboyancy of sound, you know, the flamboyancy of music, which I tend to think that the sort of metaphor of poetry is. It's something that doesn't attach itself to the sort of pragmatic use of word. You know, it, it arses mm -hmm. around with word. It, it changes so that the word that is spoken is actually lost in the in the word that is sung, if you, if you see what I mean, and which is why I pr tend to prefer metaphor, because uh, metaphor is a more poetic, a more musical, uh, less defining, and therefore less limiting form of language. Well, I'll, I'll say that um, William Burroughs once said that words, language, or he said language, meaning words, is a virus from outer space. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And well, I, I mean, I would be more inclined to think it's a virus from inner space. In other words, the, you know, the inner space that we have, and we fill up that inner space with a series of sort of, or are filled up, you know, by through our conditioning, you know, you know, by our um, prime conditioners who are our parents, our school, our religion, etc., etc. That fills up that space. Uh, with nonsenses, um, and which is why, you know, earlier I said, you know, I've, I've been more, my whole life has been involved in deconstruction, in removing, you know, the detritus that was imposed upon me as what my father used to call the real world. <laughs> um, and, you know, we all know perfectly well that the real world in any particular culture simply exists through a sort of hypnotic state of agreement or in a state of agreement which is gained through hypnosis. Um, and it has no substance whatsoever. And if it has no sub substance, it has no matter. And if it has no matter, then it doesn't matter. Um, and so therefore... You know, it's a sort of sounds glib, but I think, it, you know, there's a deep truth in that. It interests me greatly that, you know, quantum has, you know, increasingly, you know, effectively breaking down any idea of sort of construct. That I mean, that the, the construct is the result of observation, not of existence uh, or of essence. You know, so it's, it's quite interesting. The, I mean, I've taken the existential position you know for, for you know a large amount of my adult life in the sense you know existence before essence or preceding essence well I, I i think there might be a fundamental mistake there because i think there might be no essence whatsoever i mean um there's no as i as, as i understand it there is absolutely no proof or substantial evidence to give rise to ideas of essence because it is all through observation. We we are always the observer. That's unavoidable. Well, what what is avoidable is that you know what is is questionable is you know the existence of any matter within the observed. You know, and it sounds sort of like one's asking around, and one. But I, you know, I profoundly, through my own experience, and, and more and more conscious of the sort of flux. If you know, if if essence has any matter, then that, you know it's very clear to me that it is in absolute flux, and you know, and the only stability in it is that which I give it through my observation of it. That's funny because I've devoted practically zero time to the question of of even the contemplation of the word essence. I have to think about that one. But, but um, I, I guess I come from the surrealist viewpoint more, which is, you know, we're, we're born with all these incredible potentials for creativity, and words are a tool of creativity. You know, you, you make drawings, so, but you need paper and pen or pencil to make them, otherwise they stay inside you, you could say. And so that's another potential you're born with. And then you're born with this great theatrical potential to <laughs> give very expressive poetic readings, which many people aren't, don't seem to be able to do. And then you seem to have the 
potential to be a philosopher, which i.e. someone who's constantly questioning the meaning of everything and how we're, everything is all interconnected in the world. But the less you are, the more you are in that sense. I mean, if, you, if, if I were to consider myself to be any of the things that you're saying, then, then, then I'm already restricting the potential that exists outside of that. I mean, the potential is by nature and by definition infinite. Uh, and we all have infinite potential. And that inf infinite potential is not linear. It isn't contained within the mm -hmm. confines of space and time. If it mm -hmm. is confined within space and time, actually it ceases to be potential. Potential is backwards moving, forwards moving, upwards and downwards moving. It is multi-directional. Multi mm -hmm. um, so any given moment, you know, I mean, you were saying how, you know, one one might be able to sort of, you know, return to an exact imagining of breaking your finger when you were three. Equally, I can return to an exact imagining of my death uh, because by nature, those things are already defined. You know, just as I was born on a certain day, certainly I will die on a certain day. The fact that I... At this moment, I'm unable to say whether it's tomorrow or in 10 years' time, is irrelevant. The fact is, it can only happen when it happens and will happen on a defined date. Any consideration, uh, one could argue, is sort of reasonably irrelevant within that framework. Um, which isn't a fatalistic point of view, because to talk about it or to define it, to abstract it or to construct it, has no effect whatsoever within the general and overall symbiosis. You know, it can only be as it is at this given moment. Um, it seems to me that one of the sort of failings of consciousness is is, is to say, well, it can only be as it is in the... It, 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 as a statement of victimhood, you know, it's it, um, as a, as a statement of suffering. I mean, I have a strong argument with the Buddhistic view that life is suffering. I mean, that is absurd. Life is not suffering. Um, it's quite the opposite. It's nothing at all. You know, and, and it's only suffering if one is involved in the turmoil one creates of it. You know, inevitably, if you stir up a tub of water, then the water's going to be disturbed. Well, we are a tub of water, you know, in the symbiotic and the sort of cosmic level, you know, so, you know, do, do unto thyself. Um, so we're sort of set into this sort of role of being the victim of life. Um, you know, the, well, I never asked to be born sort of syndrome. Um... You might just as well say, I never asked not to be born. I mean, it's quite um, an irrelevancy. And, and, and the idea that there's any import, importance whatsoever um, in one's sort of manifestation, you know, is a conceit. I mean, it can be nothing but a conceit, a vanity. Um remove those elements, and one simply is the drift of life, whatever that is. The moment one tries to sort of attach any sort of importance or meaning or value or judgment into that, then actually one ceases to be the drift of life and becomes some sort of absurd manifestation of 
imagined static, as I understand it. You mean <clears throat> imagined status, perhaps? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I I keep saying I, but now I'm very self-conscious about <laughs> using the word I. Well, one has to, so... <laughs> Unless one uses the royal one. But, so one is <laughs> or the royal we. The royal oh, yeah, we. The royal we, yeah. Well, the, you know, I, love, I like your concept of the universe as, as some huge symbiosis. And, uh, and I, 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 I think I've tried to not just be imprisoned by the confines of my own so-called ego, but I, I think I strive to continually be putting myself in the larger context of space and time in the entire universe and i realize we are in a time continuum which i suppose well we are not i mean we i mean we uh, we we are not in a, a time continuum i mean the um the prescriptions of enlightenment thought tied us to that as a sort of identity it is necessary, if we are to exist in this form of identity, that we believe these certain formulas. Uh, and certainly time and space is a direct result of of that uh, I the thinker, I the seer, I the observer, the I, I, I. I mean, I, I don't know a great deal about pre-Descartes uh, uh, thinking, uh, but I'm very aware that it was considerably more fluid. It was far, far more inclined to take off into sort of the mi- so-called mystical realms, uh, which weren't so bound by time and space. I mean, uh, in the few um, underdeveloped or truly developed um, places in the world that I visited, particularly Africa... The, a time is something which expands and contracts infinitely. You know, uh, linear time does not actually operate. It doesn't work. It's, it's pointless to try and apply it. And if you do try to apply it, then you get into serious messes, or you know, you get into serious messes of frustration for a start. Um, Things happen in their own good time, and actually, if one is willing to engage in that good time, then one things will happen accordingly and correctly. And I mean, I, for example, I remember on one occasion where I was leaving uh, Africa, I had a plane to catch. I had probably something in the region of four hours to travel from the village that we were staying at to the airport in in western time it probably took us 10 hours to get from the village to the airport and the plane should have gone six hours earlier but there it was waiting for us um that is because we were acting within the expanding time uh, or non-time you know which will accommodate entirely and i've learned that you know working at on the land, you know, that time will always create itself to allow the purpose that one has placed for oneself within that 
within that framework. You know, there's always time to do the job I set out to do. Whatever time I start, time will expand to allow me to finish. And I, you know, meaning time that eventually it will get too dark to be able to do something. But that never happens because I always finish before it gets dark. And it's not because I'm trying to beat time. It's because time expands, you know. So our whole idea that time actually is a sort of set... Th- I mean, I wear a watch because that is part of the theatre of, of operation within a given world. But it, it, it is a given world, you know. And if you're in the West, then it's the given world that is the one that is most commonly agreed to. So it's best to commonly agree to do it. But it has, you know, to, to, to imagine that this actually is a sort of de facto operating truth is absurd because it isn't. I think I've never been comfortable with the notion of identifying my body with me. I don't know if you ever thought about that, and I don't know if it's even important. You mean, I, do I represent, does the I represent the body that carries that idea? That look, you've got to admit, you've got your own unique DNA, your own unique RNA, which means wherever the memory cells in your body that 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 preserve memory are. I mean, these memories are encoded in your alleged RNA cells. Yeah, but I do actually believe we have the potential to completely restructure those. Oh, well, the brain, I. Sure, the brain's amazing because people have had little parts of their brain removed. They they do work. The brain constructs workarounds mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, they can function. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think I think we are marvelous. I mean, this, there's a huge amount of marvelous in every person, and and they don't seem to really value themselves enough. Many people don't. Well, I think I think that I mean one of the obvious arenas is that of disease so-called dis-ease disease and you know i mean i profoundly believe that we are perfectly equipped to um to not to control but to actually embrace disease in a very different way to how generally speaking people in the west they don't embrace the disease they actually go into battle with it and what they're doing is going into battle with themselves because it's themselves that's ill you know, they're creating an extreme form of duality and will suffer the consequences and frequently do suffer the consequences, you know, the consequences being the, the dereliction of pain. I mean, pain is an exquisite feature of life, just as as, 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 as whatever the opposite to pain, pleasure. You know, it's a unique and beautiful possibility, you know, and I certainly realised that during my period of, you know, severe illness. Um... You know, I could argue that I did not want to be in pain, but then I would equally argue that I would not want to be in a constant state of laughter. Um, <laughs> because, you know, both of them actually, are, th- 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 there's a great similarity between these, you know, those two extremes. Extreme joy is just as sort of deadening as extreme pain is, you know, to everything else. You know, it's, it's a very, you know, um, um, it's a huge take on. Um, you mean take over? Well, yeah, ta- I mean, no, it is a take over, but it's we that are doing it, so actually it's a take on. And I think the whole idea that 
um, you know, that, that, that there's something that isn't us that we can treat as something which isn't us and actually give over to other people to treat as something that isn't us. How are you feeling? You know, those sorts of strange um, absurdities. I mean, how does that, I mean, who are you feeling might be a better way of putting it or what you know why are you feeling is an even of course an even better way and little nerve synapses are yeah, sending yeah. messages yeah. Yeah. up these amazing passageways yeah. to your brain yeah. and yeah i think humans are marvelous we are fearfully and wonderfully made <laughs> to quote somebody way back in time <laughs> in a book that i've partly disavowed called the bible or something <laughs> i always i had long ago i had a problem with calling it the bible because as a that seems to imply as though there's only one you know one book you might say and no there's many books but then you could also argue that every book that's ever been written is part of one huge book yeah which is sort of a mashup philosophy that's kind of contemporaneous like there have been predictions that when all these books every book that's ever been written will be available free in the internet that there's will be a massive opportunity for the most infinite mashup potential there's ever been. Well, it certainly would be interesting that if one could, you know, include all written word that has ever existed and, you know, onto the internet and then sort of put it through a sort of filter, what one might end up with, you know, so that you actually, you know, you, I mean, and obviously it would be possible to create a program which would sort of, you know, like go to particular ideas, particular concepts, and actually sort of coming up with the sort of, you know, the synthesis or praise or synthesis of, of them to see what the result was certainly would be fascinating, wouldn't it? Because, you know, you would... Because everything's just a some form of repeat. Um, it has to be. Um, nothing comes from nowhere. So... Um, and something comes from somewhere and... <laughs> You could also say that that um, I, I know I've read about a program out there that allegedly creates quote unquote poetry yeah. out of all the poems in its database. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even even Burroughs did cut ups, mm. and when before him, I guess mm. Brian Geisen, you know, which were literally cutting up newspaper columns and restitching the adjusting and restitching the words together to sometimes they claimed be prophetic predict uh, things well I think, no i think that's absolutely right but then i mean i think that's even more achievable through the operation of no mind or uh um, that, that an unleashed mind will do the same i mean which is why you know so-called psychotic is very liable to be highly intuitive, highly able to make sort of prof prophetic remarks, because they are actually unleashed. So therefore, you know, their um, you know uh, the the breadth of their attack, if you like, is far greater than the average, you know, highly confined, parametized individual. Uh, I mean, psychosis is a breakout from the individual 
restriction into a sort of you know broader field which can be dangerous or you know can equally be whatever the opposite to dangerous it can create art actually totally no um so and actually it's breadth you know i mean to go almost back to the beginning of what we were talking about i mean that's what i seek is not i mean breadth was what i sought but then i realized actually a, a way of you know a very much quicker way of arriving at some sort of breadth and i would say that possibly buddhism aims at a form of breadth uh i think zen goes that much further in in broadening but actually the whole as i see it the concept of beforeness you know, actually just sort of actually circumvents all of that, you know, one doesn't, you know, because one isn't engaging in the first place with the sort of Descartian uh, individual, which has to sort of, you know, bit by bit free itself from from itself. Um, and there are lots of practices available in any bookshop or anywhere you want to go, you know, which... Can, you can sort of trick the dark, uh, the, the, the Cartesian eye into sort of becoming broader. But, you know, it seems to me there's a very much simpler way, and that's when quite simply enters into the equation before the Cartesian eye. I think it's pretty abstract to start trying to envision... The before the Cartesian eye, and if I'm a personality, or 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 maybe my personality is just an illusion. Well, it certainly is, and it's your personality, which which well, not yours. I don't. I'm not. This isn't personal. You know, one's personality <laughs> is the very thing which doesn't want to engage with any concepts of before, because quite simply, it will it will be vanquished. Um, you know, we imagine that it's our personality which makes us the charming people we are or the person <laughs> we imagine ourselves to be in other people's eyes. Well, I, I, I believe that that's a profound mistake uh, because uh, the, the more highly developed the personality is, the more rigid it becomes. In fact, the more unobtainable the more um you know the less easy it is to fuse with highly developed and highly practiced personalities Hmm. um i mean one of the reasons it's so easy to confer with bums in the street is because they've got very little to hang on to uh, it doesn't necessarily mean one's going to have pleasant conferences, but it does mean that there's very little to hang on to. There's an immediacy which can go any way. Um, you know, it's far more like sort of swimming across a river rather than rafting across it. You know, well, I mean, I want to swim through life, not raft on it. Um, because swimming through it or being it, uh, of it, rather than, you know, in some way rafted against it, you know, being in the great big ocean liner where really we all exist as the sea um, is a sort of rather silly thing to do. You know, and it, I mean, one could look at, you know, the institutions of democracy, politics as being just huge, great warships on or liners or whatever one wants to use them as a floating on the ocean of being. Um, and, you know, denying all its occupants, you know, all these sort of ridiculous things that we are a democracy. Well, you know, 
our ways of sort of ensuring that we stay on deck and don't dive off the side. Um, it, we will only become a democracy when everyone dives off the side and the boat drifts away empty. Then we will be a democracy. You know, as long as the boat in any way is any has, you know, and it will have its little Titanic, uh, you know, uh, Titanic written on the side, and we all know where the Titanic's going. Well, that's the nature of you know, sort of any form of political institution is bound to its own destruction, and it is bound in its own destruction to carry all its inhabitants with it. Yeah, but what if you're someone like me who doesn't know how to swim and never learned? <laughs> I can, I'm afraid I can't join you in that swimming in the ocean. <laughs> I'll sink like a stone, and I'd rather not. I don't know why I don't want to die, but I'm trying to be like Woody Allen, and who said, you know, like, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> Well, I don't have any fear of death whatsoever because, I mean, effectively, we're already dead. And, um, you know, we, we, we are of nothing. We came from nothing. And we will continue in that state. I mean, I don't actually see any difference between the state of life and the state of death. Um... I've already said that I, you know, I regard pain as being an exquisite part of human existence, which doesn't mean that I, you know, just sit there if I'm in great pain and smile, because I, you know, I can be sitting there in great pain with tears rolling down my face from the um, extent of it. But I have, I have no consideration whatsoever um, or pressure against my own death. I mean, it's of no consequence. I have been of no consequence, and I will remain as of no consequence. Um, and I think that the only thing we're trying to protect is, you know, um, uh, simply an idea of self, you know. Well, and, and that idea of self is so frustrating. I mean, people don't live a life because they fear the very inevitable. I mean, there is one thing that is going to happen to us all, and that is we are all going to die. Well, most people live in fear of that. Well, then they live in fear, so they never actually live. I mean, how to destroy it? I mean, so it's almost paradoxical, and it's certainly contradictory. You can't live a true life if you live it in fear of death. Yet you fear death because it's going to stop you living a life. Well, you aren't living a life because you're fearing the death. You're certainly not living the life of the full potential of existence because already you've limited it by your own fear. And that's why the institutions, in any case, you know, so they govern through, the through, through fear. I mean, all media is involved in instilling fear. And uh, I would say that almost 60% of all human communication is about the installation of fear, the maintenance of fear, because that's how people believe they exist. Uh, people enjoy drama, they enjoy, enjoy tragedy, they enjoy all of the negative aspects, because that actually makes them feel better. 
that's a sort of form of victimhood. I mean, they're, they're, it's, it's always self-contradictory, and, and, uh, but, but more, more importantly, it's also life-destroying. And that is why we started this little part of what we're talking about, say, well, you know, you're already dead. We are already dead. You know, the, the fact that we might choose to use our imaginings to say otherwise is fairly irrelevant. The state that exists here at this very moment is exactly the same state that would exist when we're not here this very moment. Uh, <coughs> we are not either taking from it or giving to it. We are simply of it. Uh, and we will continue in whatever way to be of or not of it. But we, you can't, you, you know, the, the, law, the, the, the law of physics, the law of energy maintains that it is impossible to remove. Well, you cannot remove and, you, and one is not removed. I'm not, uh, um, you know, a sort of life after deather at all. You know, that's ridiculous. That, because life, the life that people talk about when they talk about life after death is actually the conceits of the mind. Well, the conceits of the mind will not survive death, and that's for bloody certain. You know, look at that, and that you know that can be proved neurologically or in any way you want. You know, it will not and cannot exist. And as we are a conceit of the mind, the we that is the I, the Descartian individual, then you know to sort of start creating fanciful ideas that that silly conceit is going to somehow survive death is just an absurdity. What certainly survives is the fact that nothing changes. You know, the energetic field will move off into other areas, other generations, other manifestations, you know, and God bless it on its journey. <laughs> but actually, everything changes all the time and is in a Precisely. change of yeah. flux. I, yeah. I mean, I like those sixth-century philosophers, Heraclitus and Lao mm. Tzu, yeah, yeah, yeah. who made statements like you never step into the same river twice no, right. and yeah. um yeah. but you know i i think you haven't ignored absolutely one of the i don't know important priorities for me which is humor constant <laughs> i mean humor I is really important well i actually think the deep humor is in is in, is is in that absurdity i mean you very frequently say why am i laughing <laughs> and i do laugh a lot i do not laugh very much about uh, uh, human comedy because human comedy isn't is a comedy of errors usually we laughing at other people tripping on a banana skin is just not funny to me it doesn't <laughs> why I mean, am i laughing i'm not saying you <laughs> um and so and most jokes are at the expense of someone or something and so and, I, and that doesn't amuse me what does amuse me is just the sort of absurdity of human, uh, my own and other people's sort of actions, um, the simple movements, you know, the, and and the sort of sense of meaning, you know, being sort of fabric. I mean, when 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 the when the conjurer draws the rabbit out of the hat, you know, and we laugh or we were, you know, it's it. Well, I find that with just about anything. You know, uh, everything is a rabbit coming out of a hat, you know, whether it's what someone says or the way that piece of wire is over there. You know, so, I mean, I actually think that the entire 
manufactured universe is a, a massive joke. And, in, and I don't mean that in a cynical way. I mean, I think it's hugely funny um, in the deepest sense. Um, you know, it's the sort of, if you like, the sort of belly laugh of the Buddha. Um, the, the, the true ho, 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 uh, which is manifest in everything. Um, at the same time, um, there's a strange manifestation of the opposite. Um, you know, that there are tears in everything, you know, that, that you know, that, that, that there, every, everything is, is sort of passing away as much as growing, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I don't think I, I, I certainly do not ignore humour. I mean, I am humorized massively simply by the pure absurdity of existence. And that's what makes me laugh more than anything else. You know, I don't laugh at jokes. I, know, I mean, because most jokes don't seem to me to be very funny. No, I, I'm a fan of cosmic humor, of, yeah, yeah, of black yeah. humor. Black mm -hmm. humor, to me, always brings some some other darker principle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not immediately illusorily important mm, yeah. or a, a apparent. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, black humor is more cosmic to me. Yeah, yeah, it, I agree. It, well, if, when you, if you mean by cons cosmic universal... Which and is, and Shakespearean. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, Shakespeare was the master of, of the universal. Um, <laughs> and I think that that's partly because he had the great benefit of of, of really preempting, you know, sort of mass culture. You know, I mean, he was one of the... Uh, in the same way as Mozart had the privilege of being very early on uh, in scored music, the same way. I mean, Shakespeare was very early on in the printed word. And so it hadn't become so defined. The parameters hadn't been so drawn. It hadn't been, you know, and, it, and, it, and, and, and therefore it wasn't in any way as limiting, you know. And if, if you then sort of look at the parameters drawn by sort of Freudian um, psychology, which again, you know, really t put the, the you know, the thumbscrews on to defining human states. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, all these things are just limitations. You know, we're not, you know, on the one hand, you know, there's the sort of aspect, oh, well, we're learning more about things. Well, actually, we're learning less about them. You know, if you compare the sort of magnificent breadth of Shakespeare to any modern writer, and you'll be saying, well, what, you know, what happened? You know, how, how did all that go wrong? I mean, there are a few... People who've risen to those heights, I mean, I think Walt Whitman in America came close to those sorts of magnificent heights and the romanticist in, 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 in England, etc., etc. But few, only few have, have risen to that breadth of vision. Few have dared, which is really what it's about. Um, you know, and the fact that, you know, under Freudian principles, Cathy and Heathcliff could not exist <laughs> and have not existed. There has been no two romantic heroes on that level, which could instruct, you know, I mean, I think I think that, that Wuthering Heights is a very instructive um, document about the nature of passion 
the dangers of passion, the joys of passion, etc., and actually the deep meaning of passion. Way outside of all the sort of... I mean, they, uh, uh, they both, both Cathy and Heathcliff, by modern definitions, were psychotic. There's no question of that. <laughs> um, well, it's our loss that's, that, that, is, that we are able to see them in that light. And I think that that's given rise to an awful lot of, you know, very cruel um, literature. Um, you know, a lot of modern novels are quite simply cruel because they cannot any longer countenance the totality of uh, of human experience it has you know because that's what freud knocked on the head he compartmentalized human experience you know to 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 be able to say that love and hate are separate emotions is quite absurd you know <laughs> because they are one and the same and they actually manifest in in almost identical ways fear is lack of respect Lack of what? Respect. Respect? Yeah. What do you mean fear is lack of respect? <laughs> well, I was thinking about rats. Rats? Yeah. And I mean, I used to uh, think, well, there's two things, rats and heights. And heights. Heights. Like being yeah. up high. And they're both things that I feared. Oh. Um... And I feared, um, you know, and, and so I was inhibited, you know. In other words, you know, my, in, in, a, in some way, my life was inhibited because I couldn't go up mountains, which possibly isn't particularly important, but I also used to feel a bit nervous, fearful, walking across the cow yard back home at night because the rats would be out. And certainly when I first lived in the house, there was rats inside as well, and I was fearful of them. Um, and then I was thinking that really, I mean, I overcame my fear of mount of heights by becoming a mountaineer, by becoming a climber. I thought, well, I'm going to sort of, you know, challenge this. I'm going to do something about it. And the only thing you can do is to do it, go out there and, and what I realized is I wasn't in the least bit afraid of height um i simply hadn't grown able to respect them you know so i can now stand on a minute ledge that you know hundreds or hundreds of foot above ground <clears throat> and of course i have a um a, a very sensible um fear of falling which I can do something about, you know, I can put in the right nuts, I can, you know, tie myself in until I'm ready to climb again. Um, I can use sensible protection, which, you know, largely um, inhibits any real damage one might do to oneself, etc., etc. In other words, it's going to respect the situation that one overcomes the fear. Well... Similarly, I had a fear of rats, and on one occasion I came out of my shed in the garden to return to the house, and there was a very large rat squatted rather near the door into the kitchen, and on its back feet, it was sort of sitting up. And I thought, oh, at last, here's an opportunity to overcome my fear. 
So I sort of actually walked up to it, you know, in a way that one wouldn't normally to a rat. And normally a rat would bugger off anyway, but this one didn't. What it did was it let out a hideous scream and attacked me. Um, <laughs> so I sort of backed off very fast eventually found a broom because it really was insistent it you know and obviously it was quite sick uh and so it attacked the broom and eventually we managed to get a bin over it and we got it into the bin and threw it off into the um cow yard so it could sort of finish its life or do whatever it had to do but anyway it was actually disrespectful of me to imagine that i could in some way or other you know sort of embrace the rat, you know, I mean, they're not there to be embraced. They're there to do whatever rats do, actually, which is, generally speaking, clear up human detritus and muck. You know, they're very useful for that. Um, so, anyway, I, it just occurred to me, because we sort of just touched on rats, you know, that actually rat, it, it, that fear is really lack of respect. And if one looks at anything one is fearful of and can grow to respect it, which doesn't mean... I don't mean respect in the sense of therefore acknowledging and liking, but of respecting something for its isness, for what it is. Then one is in a position, actually, to deal with one's own relationship with that in a way which is not fearful, which is free to see and to understand and to interact in the way that things that don't have consciousness consciousness interact quite normally. I mean, it always irritates me when people will say that a cat is cruel, for example, in the way that right. it plays around with things. It isn't cruel at all. It's simply doing what it does do. I mean, cats play with mice, actually, until they break blood and then they eat it. And so they're, the playing with is actually a method of breaking blood because until the blood's comes out they're not at their instinct doesn't isn't to kill uh it's simply to play around um for some reason or other i don't know what that reason is but you know because that's just part of the whole biological development of anything but anyway so i mean i, I just thought you know i mean it's only a sort of an aside really but you know i mean fear is always going to have a root in lack of respect and hatred too. Well, that is lack of respect. <laughs> but all, but it's funny yeah. how you yes, did no, link. Yes, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah. You did link hatred and love yeah. as being two two sides of the same yeah, coin. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, only I mean I think um, and I mean I rarely quote people, but Eckhart Tolle, you know, talks about quite simply, if you were that person, you'd know why. Well, that's sim that's enough. You know, uh, and I do very much believe that's absolutely correct, you know, there but for the grace of God. And the fact is that everyone is, I mean, it's something that uh, we were talking about at that Q&A the other evening. I mean, I profoundly, I profoundly believe that everyone's doing their best. Hmm. And their best Including might. the people you hate. Yes. No, absolutely, they are. And I do know, I mean, one of my methods of dealing with anyone who I imagine I hate or I imagine... <laughs> do you hate anyone? No. I really? Uh, no, I absolutely do not. No one who wronged you? No. No, no. Well, how do you deal with someone who wrongs you? <laughs> well, they're them. 
You know, I mean, uh, how do you? I mean, it's sort of like trying to impose onto people conditions that are spectacularly different to what you impose onto most other things. I mean, it's a bit the sort of situation that if you drop a brick on your toe when you're on your own, you probably go f- and sort of kick it or something or other. If you drop a brick on your toe when there's someone standing next to you, you're very likely either to blame them or to get into some magnificent drama to impress them, to engage them. And I was given incredible instruction once when there was a um, an illiterate, and I don't mean that in any critical way, um, labourer, man of the land, who used to live on the farm, old man, who, you know, became a great instructor for me. I mean, I could almost go as far as saying it was a form of guru to me. You know, he was completely uneducated. He had never travelled any further than the land that he lived on, and he was one of the labourers on the farm in where Dial House is located. And on one occasion, we were putting a stake into the ground. Uh, he was holding the stake, and I was doing the... Um, you know, sledgehammer, and the sledgehammer came down on my thumb, and I was in absolute agony. And he sim- he he was completely unmoved by my pain, and quite simply said to me, "Well, I didn't feel it." Well, that was a sort of huge instruction. I mean, it, effectively, what he was telling me was no point whatsoever in blowing it out into the world. I didn't feel it. Y- you're alone in this. Get real about it. And, you know, it was, you know, it was a sort of little satori for me. It was absolutely correct. I'm on my own in all of these things. Well, don't, what am I, why, why, why manufacture them into, why try to incorporate people into that drama? It's actually the complete opposite to compassion. Uh, mm-hmm. What compassion does is to try to flood out into all being and what that sort of stuff is actually trying to incorporate into one's own pain or one's own joy, humour or whatever it is, try to catch and draw people into your particular pathos, <laughs> your particular demonstration, your particular drama. Well, I mean, I do, and I've for a long time regarded other people as like the weather. Uh, you can complain about the weather, but it's going to be the weather whether you complain about it or not. You know, it makes no f- difference. You can be sensible and put on a raincoat if you're going out when it's raining, or not. That's your choice. But to complain about it is just absurd. And I mean, actually, Enlightenment thinker thinking gives a great deal of weight to complaint. It constantly, I mean, the whole program, the whole industrial revolution, the whole eugenics, or everything has come out of this idea that we can improve on the given. <laughs> now, the, the, the average sort of uh, African village doesn't attempt to improve upon the given. It simply operates within the given. So it grows its cassava, it climbs up trees and comes down with coconuts it smokes what's available it doesn't you know make its roads better they're they're simply tracks from one place to another um and if they're full of mud they're full of mud and they're not full of mud they're not full of mud uh etc 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 you know so they're not attempting in any way to improve upon the given they are the given and they operate within and of the given